0: On today's Speaking Out of Place, we talk with journalist, activist, and public intellectual Jeff Chang. Jeff's most recent book, We Gon' Be Alright, Notes on Race and Resegregation, was called by the Washington Post, quote, the smartest book of the year, and inspired a four-episode digital series adaptation for PBS Indie Lens Storycast. He was named to the Frederick Douglass 200 as one of, quote, 200 living individuals who best embody the work and spirit of Frederick Douglass. Today, we talk about the Supreme Court's recent decision on affirmative action. The plaintiffs of that case, Students for Admission, an organizations led by non-student Ed Bloom, made particular use of Asian Americans as a kind of stand-in for whites. Jeff and I talk about the history of that tactic, which dates back to the late 60s and especially the 1980s, the years of the Reagan presidency. We also talk about the ways in which many liberal and progressive Asian Americans and others took shelter in Harvard University's defense of diversity. Jeff points out that such a move effectively erases the long-term bias Harvard and other elite universities have displayed toward Jews and Asian Americans and backs away from a true and historically honest confrontation with America's racism. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. You've talked about it. I've talked about it. How ahistorical or selectively historical the discussions about the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action have been. So I thought I'd mention just a couple of historical bits at the beginning and then let you dig into it. First, the term model minority has been floating around really historically for a long time. But I think it's important for our listeners to know from its inception, it was always a wedge between Asian-Americans and blacks and browns. It was designed that way. It came out of an article that was published in The New York Times by a sociologist named William Peterson. And this was in 1966 it's called success story asian american style and it compared the success of japanese americans who didn't protest or supposedly didn't protest and were instead quietly assimilating into the U.S. mainstream, even having been incarcerated or relocated during the Second World War, as opposed to blacks and browns who had just the year before been part of the Watts uprising. So it was this very stark contrast that this guy wanted to draw, and obviously it found a receptive audience. So I wanted to put that out there. And the second thing is that conservatives have been after affirmative action from the beginning, and it really solidified as early as, 1980 when Ronald Reagan is running for president. And the GOP platform has this language, quote, the truths we hold and the values we share affirm that no individual should be victimized by unfair discrimination because race, sex, advanced stage, physical handicap, difference of national origin or religion, or economic circumstance. Sounds good so far. However, equal opportunity should not be jeopardized by bureaucratic regulations and decisions which rely on quotas, ratios, numerical requirements to exclude some individuals in favor of others, therefore rendering such regulations and decisions inherently discriminatory. So there you have it in a nutshell. As far back as 1980, with slight adjustments with the ratios, and things like that. But that's essentially the argument. So if you wouldn't mind, Jeff, comment on either or both things that I said and then bring us up to date Gosh, there's so much to sink our teeth into there, isn't there? Yeah. Lots and lots of stuff.
1: The interesting thing that you pointed out is that this article, it's dropping in the New York Times, 1966. This is the year that, of course, we're seeing the rise of the Black Panther Party, the turn towards the notion of Black power and Black consciousness, which in turn influences the rise of the Asian American movement, which is really the reason that we're here today. And also part of the thing that they're trying to smash right now their attacks on critical race theory trying to ban african-american studies in florida and texas while trying to uplift asian-american studies or at least a version Mm -hmm. of it there's that sort of gamesmanship that's going on there the racial respectability politics if you want to call Mm -hmm. it that's happening In that current moment, there's a clear line from that particular period to now. And the ideology of being able to pit a good minority against the bad minorities in order to reverse the imperative, restored justice types of programs that were put into place to remedy historic exclusion and racism, to undo white supremacy, that's basically where we've been placed. Asian Americans have been placed in the racial hierarchy in the U.S. between complicity and injustice. Mm -hmm. 1980 is a really interesting point because we're talking now about a couple of years after the momentous Baki decision actually removes completely the rationale of affirmative action programs in the way that they were established originally, which were meant to be compensatory programs, restorative programs, narrative programs to undo historic exclusion and racism. And so we see that in this fragmented court that makes this decision around the Baki decision and basically denies that any of these programs should have any kind of justification in reparative type of work, but instead should rely upon Harvard's standard of diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from the right and the left, what we've seen is this tug of war since then, over this standard of diversity, right? That universities have a compelling interest in being able to establish a diverse classroom because that would help the educational
0: opportunities of mainly white folks, yeah. really. Kevin, let's uh, Jeff, step back just a sec so people understand the transition to diversity. In other words, diversity was the sort of solve on the wound. We're going to replace quotas, which are hard numbers and nobody likes them, which appears in the 80 platform with this very amorphous notion of diversity talk about harvard's notion of diversity and and why it's problematic
1: well okay so first of all we should say that there was a split there on the court where basically four people on the court were like we don't want to have affirmative action programs at all we don't think that there's any reason to correct any kind of historic exclusion. We should just rule this out of bounds. And this is sort of the meeting of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment, which is, going back to your original point, ahistorical. Why did we have 14th Amendment? To be able to offer rights to those who've been completely disenfranchised of them, meaning slaves, African-American slaves. And out of that, of course, comes a whole host of reforms that then lead us in the direction of racial justice. A hundred years later, this is where affirmative action is coming in, right? And so we're at this point where there's four people who are against this, there's four people who are like, are you kidding? That's not how anybody should understand the Equal Protection Clause. That's not how anybody should understand the Fourteenth Amendment. That's not how anybody should understand what the directionality of this, what the arc of this particular program should be. And so Justice Lewis Powell, who's a conservative, let's note that, comes in and says, There has to be a way to allow universities to be able to continue the thing that they're doing. You know, there's sort of an institutionality here that we need to protect. And Harvard has devised a way to be able to deny its history of exclusion of Jewish minorities and Black minorities by saying what we are trying to do now is less trying to make up for exclusion than to be able to create diverse classrooms in which learning can be at the highest level that it can be at. So they are literally talking about diversity for white people in this particular instance. And they draw upon language that Harvard's administrators have developed that literally compare people like Chicanos and African-Americans to kayakers yes. <laughs> folks who grew up in Kansas. Yep, exactly, That's the version of diversity that that we end up having to defend mm-hmm. in 2023. And it's already a very deprecated standard. It's a standard that is actually quite hard to defend from a progressive
0: position. Mm-hmm. This is a thing that obviously grows out of aiding and abetting whiteness and white supremacy. Yeah. And this whole pattern of perverting the original intention of laws, measures, even language is so rampant, like the notion of reverse discrimination or center for individual rights, or in terms of diversity, the universities are filled with liberals. We need to admit some conservative students, right? So diversity works, you can slice and dice it in just about any way once you open the door, which Harvard did in this particular manner, right? Yes, absolutely.
1: And so we get to this really strange kind of debate in recent times with this particular case. Students for Fair Admin is an organization that was formed literally by the plaintiff, Kel Fisher, her father, and Ed Bloom, who's a person who has been steadily trying to figure out how to compromise and undo some of the most important pieces of legislation that have come down since the 1960s. In a previous case that he filed, Shelby County versus Holder, he sought to really take out undermine completely and destroy the the Voting Rights Act and succeeded in great measure. And we actually had a case this year that came up in the Supreme Court in which they actually drew the line. They said it was in the Supreme Line, and they said, no, we're not going to take this any further. Actually, we've already compromised this enough, but for a bit of action, we're going to go ahead and undo that. So you know, from jump, this was an orchestrated attack. It's been funded to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. This is not a group that is grassroots like David versus Goliath. Mm-hmm. This is Goliath versus David, yep. really. Yep. David being the continuing mass of underrepresented color yep. who are being excluded from the universities by the bridging of affirmative action, not the universities. So we need to get into that a little in a little okay. bit when we talk about different positions that mm-hmm. Asian-American mm-hmm. staked out in this. Before we go to that, I think it's really important to be able to say that what they determined was that having failed to undo affirmative action once and for all in the in their case against the University of Texas over 20 years ago, they decided that what they needed to do was to put a fix of color. And so they actively began looking for Asian-American plaintiffs to serve as the face mm-hmm. of resegregation. and. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But they were looking literally for anti-affirmative action Asian Americans. And they found them because there has been concerted effort to recruit Asian Americans Mm -hmm. to the anti-affirmative action cause since the 1980s. So this sets us up, I think, to be able to describe what happened in the 1980s with Asian Americans in university admissions at selective universities like Mm -hmm. Harvard and Brown and UC Berkeley and UCLA. And Yale and
0: Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I just see- want to insert before you get into that. I'm so glad you pointed out the instrumental Asian Americans because Abigail Fisher wasn't a great candidate. You know, her okay. grades were super weak, and she said she wasn't admitted to you. She was admitted to U. She was just not admitted to the campus that she wanted. So it was a really shaky case, but they pressed on because they wanted to get the issue out. And, you know, they got something out of it nonetheless. But Asian America is a much better symbol to get out there because then the ranks say, we're not racist. We're anti-racist. Anyway, Jeff, please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what you have is beginning in the
1: 1980s, of course, we see the election of Ronald Reagan and Ms. shift to the right. And at the same time that this is happening, we have the generation of students who comes after the 1965 Immigration Act, and this is super important for Asian Americans who are one of the fastest growing racial, quote unquote, minority groups in the country during this time. And so applications from Asian Americans to these highly selective school schools skyrocket literally right at the turn of the decade from the 70s going into the 1980s. And what we have is a growing recognition amongst white alumni that, hey, maybe the seats aren't going to be there for their kids and their Kids. And so there's an uproar that actually takes place behind the scenes and admissions offices come battlegrounds at these universities where folks are trying to figure out how to preserve what rightfully should be legacy mm-hmm. seats, these alumni I believe for their children and grandchildren against this rising tide, if you will. And I use that yeah, no. for, very uh-huh. specifically, but this overwhelming tide of. Asian-Americans who are applying. I mean, there's literally talk during the 1980s about an Asian invasion exactly. on campuses Exciting. like CLA, C Berkeley, Harvard, and that kind of thing. And so what Asian-American activists, particularly the academics, mm-hmm. begin to recognize on these campuses and Asian-American students and faculty who are in this situation are recognized right away. And so what we have is Asian-American community uproar saying, like, why is it that despite these numbers are increasing so rapidly? Mm-hmm. We seem to have a cap every year on the number of Asian Americans who have been accepted to these universities and so Asian Americans organized in the Bay Area. Ling Chi Wang was leading the process here at UC Berkeley backed by judges Ken Kawichi, Judge Lillian Singh, Henry Durr who was at that time the executive director of Chinese for affirmative action and then they were joined by a lot of students on the campus who were in an uproar over this and forced the university to actually disclose a lot of the information and when that that information was disclosed, like, oh wow, they've actually been taking this admissions process, which is wholly open, mm-hmm. and every year doing these different types of tweaking of the rules in order to be able to exclude more Asians than we're. Yeah. Else in the if advisor. I could just
0: insert the Stanford side of it, which is that we have a committee called the Committee on Undergraduate Admissions and Financial Aid, COFA, and we have student reps, and this year is 1986. A student named Jeffrey Au is on it, and they said, well, does anybody have any ideas for what we should investigate? And his Isolate it and we say, "Yeah, man, let's investigate exactly what you're <laughs> describing." And they sort of said, "Oh, geez, he took us at our word. We better do something." And they found out the report was, and this was very common: unconscious bias. Like right? we're not admitting that we did anything wrong, but yeah, there was something, but we didn't mean for it to be able to. And the minute that broke, Asian American admissions just rose exponentially. Yeah, absolutely.
1: At UC Berkeley, and all of this stuff came out because there was community pressure and then state legislative pressure. And so at UC Berkeley, there was actually the state auditor general getting involved in doing a massive study of the admissions process. And what they found was that in 1986 at UC Berkeley, they had done things like changed the status of Asian Americans who were on equal opportunity program status, one of the protected programs back then because of low income status, like removing them from protection. And that impacted Asian-Americans much more than it impacted whites. They would weigh of uh, verbal scores higher than they would math scores. So they're doing all kinds of little yep. tweaking yep. of the process. And I want to make a side point here, which is that this still happens every year, all across Absolutely. the board. What could come out of this particular case, I would hope, is a, more of a discussion about what universities should disclose about their admissions mm-hmm. processes before they open the window yeah. for yeah. students to be able to yeah. apply. It's totally opaque. Yeah. because. Yeah, go ahead. I,
0: do you know? Did you know Mitchell Stevens when you were down here? So Mitchell Stevens is in the School of Ed, and he wrote this amazing book called "I Think the Making of a Class." Mm-hmm. He came in the admissions office of a small college, and this is the tell-all book. You should check it out. Mm-hmm because it digs into exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, the opacity, yeah. Yes.
1: One of the things that students for Fair Admissions actually did was they forced Harvard to disclose something like nearly a hundred thousand documents in the discovery process. And what's significant about that is that out of that, they did not surface a single individual case of an Asian American student who had been discriminated against. Students for Fair Admissions claimed to be representing oh Asian Americans, they claimed to be representing students. They never presented a single case of an Asian American student being discriminated against. And in fact, when it came time for them to present witnesses to the court, they buried their Asian American conservative activists who have been organizing caucus oh rallies in DC and New York. And so it's just very telling about how Asian Americans being used yep. in this particular instance for literally just their face. For They were the equivalent of what we being on mm-hmm. the liberal mm-hmm. side, the progressive side, get accused of, which is trading a portrait of diversity and using that for whatever types of points you mm-hmm. want to gain. That's yeah. exactly what they did. But getting back to the story here, what I want to say is that when Asian Americans were challenging selective universities in the 1980s, it was part and parcel of defending affirmative action. So that's how you can have a group like Chinese for affirmative action asking and demanding that there be transparency in the admissions process when it came to Asian Americans. Because what it proved was that Asian American students and white students were not competing in this sort of colorblind meritocratic process. What it proved was that merit was fungible Mm -hmm. when it came to historically excluded groups that could still be discriminated against in society. Merit's fungible. And so that's the big, I think, lesson and takeaway from all of this, that we have to really be careful to say that it's a zero-sum type yeah. of process yeah. here and that one seat that doesn't go to an Asian American is being given to an African American. This came out of a problem in which white alumni were worried about a seat going to an Asian American being taken away from their child or grandchild. And yet, if we look at the problem, that is a problem that specific to these selective universities, which there yeah, are maybe a hundred yes, yeah. right? Scarcity mm-hmm. of seats, right? But the problem in U.S. society mm-hmm. is the resegregation exactly. of education. And so to substitute a solution in which we're solving for a hundred universities by resegregating higher education the rest of the century,
0: that's just and, unconscionable. And, and it's this impossible to prove assertion. The seat that would have gone to my daughter or son went to X. There's no way in the world that could ever be proven There's so many other possibilities, but it sticks. It sticks because it's an easy formula.
1: Well, it's a part of a larger Mm -hmm. narrative battle that the left is losing. Because what the conservatives have been really good about, I think in all aspects of US life, is to be able to put the narrative of scarcity before people And to use that to provoke Mm -hmm. fear, right? And so Asian Americans could be the folks who are probably the most invested in the Mm -hmm. meritocracy. Every year I have family members, community members, friends of friends who are coming to me and going, okay, how do we get into Stanford, right? How do we get into UC Berkeley? We know that you should know. And it's at these particular points in which you look at these parents and you say, wow, they've been investing in these kids. They moved into the right School District, they sent them to all of the programs. They've been thinking about this process for, for like 15, 16 yeah. years yeah. for their child. And it's hard to look them in the face and be like, look, if they don't get into Stanford, which we hope they do, if, we, if they don't get into UC Berkeley, which we hope they do, they're going to yeah. still be fine. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to tell folks that because they're so emotionally invested in that. But I think because of that, Asian Americans are actually in the perfect place to be able to actually question the whole foundations of what we're talking about here with what's supposed to be a yeah. line meritocracy. There's no seat that's guaranteed at Harvard for anyone. And Harvard was really fighting for its right to be able to curate the class mm-hmm. that they want to yeah. know, create. And, and,
0: you know, I'm I saying in terms of the scarcity issue, universities like Stanford are really complicit in selling that. They don't do it openly, but they feed that image and all the, it's marketing and it's really, and then kids come and if they get in, a lot of them have really a hard time dealing with the stress because they've built into this, I'm in the land of milk and honey and I better excel in this incredibly elite class Supposedly, that's the myth. So the mental health issues that we're talking about here, which begin, as you say, when the child is young, this is another aspect I think it's important to put out there because then the idea of merit also becomes problematic, right? In it from that angle. Yeah.
1: I think you and I would agree. Like, we probably wouldn't even be competitive, or maybe you would be. I would oh, no. be competitive for C. Berkeley or Stanford these days, right? That what's changed over the last three, four decades, if we take this back to mm-hmm. 1980, what's changed between 1980 and 2023 is that we've built up a multi-billion dollar, maybe people estimate $10 yep. billion. Dollar industry that literally plays on this narrative of scarcity Mm -hmm. and the fear of Mm -hmm. parents instead of building out a truly desegregated Mm -hmm. educational system from K through graduate degrees that provides equal opportunity for all. And we've done this against the backdrop of a country that's becoming more diverse than ever Mm -hmm. and is experiencing levels of resegregation that should be unconscionable to all of us.
0: So talk more about the different positions Asian-Americans, either individually or in groups, have taken around this issue.
1: Well, I think this is where the narrative battle was Mm -hmm. lost. The larger question here, of course, we're talking about this sort of toxic meritocracy and to date our unwillingness to actually confront that straight Mm -hmm. on, right? And when I say us, I mean, Asian American community leaders and scholars. Well, in some ways you and I and so many of our colleagues and friends have benefited from meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And yet it's taken us away from a commitment to being able to create and fight against the recycle of education in the US. And so that's the larger piece of it. What I think happened in this particular instance is that faced with an impossible legal case, Asian Americans became complicit with Harvard's mm-hmm. lying on how they needed to argue this particular case. And when I say Asian Americans, I say that deliberately because if you look at the amicus briefs that were filed before the court on the liberal and the progressive side from Asian Americans, exactly zero of them mentioned any of the history of discrimination against Asian Americans during the 1980s in these self-same universities. And I am still struggling to figure out why I think that some of it is because we haven't done necessarily a good enough job of being able to pass on this mm. history. But I think a lot of it has to do with folks who were there at the time feeling like our only narrative hope here really is to be able to get in line behind Harvard's narrative. Harvard's mm. narrative was always, we've never discriminated. This has never been a university that's discriminated against anyone. No. And so that it left them in a very strange position in oral arguments in which the right was raising the explicit discrimination against yep. Jewish students especially Jewish immigrant students in the early 20th Mm -hmm. century. And Harvard saying, well, gosh, that was unfortunate. And Asian Americans having nothing to say about any of that, how it repeated itself in the 1980s against Mm -hmm. us. Right. And we've just laid out like why it would be logically, I think, possible, not to mention the morally and ethically mm-hmm. the right thing yeah. to do to be able to tie that discrimination to defensive affirmative action. But they refuse yeah. to do it. And I think it's because of the diversity standard that Harvard had to defend. Harvard saying, essentially, this is the diversity standard that we came up with. You all accepted it. We need to be able to continue to maintain this. And in fact, of course, it's really the only path that they can take Mm -hmm. legally. But what it did narratively Mm -hmm. for Asian Americans to deny this history, to suppress this history, and not to be able to take an independent stand from Harvard was to do a few things. One was, we're not passing on this fundamental part Mm -hmm. of our history, a really important part of Asian American history. And it's not to say that what we learned with it was cut and dry, that there were heroes and villains. It's very complicated. Absolutely. But what we did was, in the 1980s, established a narrative that these universities are not necessarily to be trusted, right? that as people are applying to these universities, they should assume that they're actually going to get discriminated against. And what the right did was they found a scapegoat for that in affirmative action programs. And what the left has never done is to say, that's not it. That's not what it's about, right? And here's why, right? And Bihara needs to argue that they've been a fairly mm-hmm. Mutual, mm-hmm. mutually mutual institution for most of their existence, which we all know know not to be true. But for Asian Americans to gaslight what's now been three generations of parents who have taken their kids and put them through this particular process, to gaslight them and say there's no discrimination is really to lose those Asian Americans to, to the other side. And I think that's why you saw such a silence, mm-hmm. at least a quietude, amongst a lot of Asian American progressives about affirmative action on this issue. We weren't telling yeah. the truth. Yeah. We weren't offering the real deal to yeah. folks. And as a result, you get to court and you don't even arm justices like Justice Jackson or Justice yeah. Sotomayor with a oh. full analysis of how Harvard's discrimination against Asian Americans in the past actually relates to previous discrimination and continuing discrimination against their communities. Yeah. And
0: you put it so powerfully and so well, Jeff, that it's like staying in the box that you've been given. And it's also a defeatist attitude, right? That we can't even mention these things but because it'll take away our last good chance when in actuality that's a very short-run type of way of looking at it right and you and i are thinking about the long run which includes precisely defending an educational system that would present these critiques in the belly of the beast right in other words okay fine you get in but let's really look at what the whole process was about right? right yeah
1: and it, it just makes it harder. It makes everything harder from now on. You know, there's a sense of distrust between Asian Americans and other communities of color when it comes to questions of education. What we've emboldened the right has been attacking diversity yep. plans in magnet high schools across the country, and this is our opportunity to actually be able to take a very strong stance that's pro diversity. To be able to call out the other side as anti diversity, which is a powerful narrative mm-hmm. strategy. Right to say these folks are fighting against the future. The U.S. is already here. The main question is how we're gonna make a future of it all, right? So if you're gonna fight against the future by being anti-diversity, and if you're fighting for the right to have Thomas Jefferson High School, or Lowell High School, be 90% Asian American, then what are you really no. fighting for? Yeah. I think that if we put it in those kinds of terms, most folks in Asian American communities, let alone other communities would be like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I don't think that's a core value to Asian Americans. Asian Americans have shown over and over again that they're profoundly pro-diversity yeah, exactly. term Asian American yeah. the whole conception of the idea of
0: Asian American is based on diversity. Have you seen any inklings in? other Asian-American scholars of recognizing what you're putting your finger on. How can we grab anybody's out there and sort of bring them into the loop?
1: Well, there's a few things that I would say. One is that as much as I love the lawyers and as much as we have to follow mm. their lead on cases and these kinds of things, lawyers are not the best narrative. They're, they're at the box. I, I mean, they're beholden to the box. That's their job, right? That's their job and they need to do their job and exactly. we have to do our job. So those of us who are, exactly. are scholars and thinkers and writers and pundits and artists and cultural makers, we need to be able to make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable in mm-hmm. our communities and being able to then have a united front when it comes to different types of things like this. You know, I'm not the kind of person to go back and restage battles mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But I do wish that there had been a lot more work around the narrative strategy of this particular case. It's not to say that we would have won how we did it in another kind of a way. But now we're in a situation where we're going to go into the next front being these magnet high school battles in a position in which the other side has been profoundly empowered, in which they're totally Mm -hmm. emboldened, in which they have now a case that they can point to that says, oh, the Equal Protection Clause, uh, making sure that Thomas Jefferson is 80% Asian American. American, and it's about preserving yeah. merit
0: well we have one thing working in our favor because i always like to see the upside if because yeah, of the meritocracy that that whole diversity nerve it's so cheesy it's so weak if you look at it with like even a 40 watt bulb it starts to melt because it's a fabrication and it's also so confining it locks you into this really insane race to be meritorious in whatever way you can so i think you put your finger on it we need to think of a better narrative, a much more real narrative, a narrative that embraces more broadly a sense of what's right. And I'm hoping that everybody listening here who's interested will email me or Jeff or both of us. Because that's how things start. It starts by having an opposing or a different viewpoint out there that people start slowly signing on to.
1: I just want to say real quick, the narrative Mm -hmm. is a narrative is not one of scarcity. Exactly.
0: And it's about approaching the future of this
1: country in ways that allow that diversity to be able to take us to a multiracial democracy that we haven't ever seen. So it's not diversity versus meritocracy. It's diversity versus the notion of scarcity. So if we take it back to the stakes of the Harvard case, again, maybe 100, 200 schools, selective university, about around which this scarcity is a problem, right? We need to be talking about all levels exactly. of education and we need to be talking about how educational opportunities should be Mm. equally available to all. What we're going to be heading into is a period in which they're going to be trying to create a lot of quote unquote, race neutral Exactly. Exactly. Well, the one that they, the one that they arrived at in Texas was one that basically is rooted in resegregation. That was the 10%. And the idea is that if you go and you take the top 10% of students from schools, whether they be in the inner city or in the well-financed suburbs, that you'll get to cultural diversity and racial diversity Mm -hmm. on the campuses. only works if those schools remain exactly, segregated, exactly. And segregated and segregated by class. And even more so, it's really important for us to be able to understand how diversity is playing itself out and how within that diversity, is playing itself out. And for us to take a strong stand that ending resegregation is the way to foster our best path towards a powerful yeah. diversity. I
0: like the last two words you said, powerful diversity, because we want to make a distinction between the way we're using the word diversity and the way the right is using the word diversity. So maybe we should even think of a different word, but powerful diversity, militant diversity, all those things. Yeah. Militant diversity. Diversity,
1: just diversity Yeah, work as opposed to diversity that tends to division Mm -hmm. and
0: polarization and segregation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned the affirmative action is part of a whole slew of things: anti-abortion rights, anti-voting rights, mm-hmm. and in many of the cases, it's again a really warped notion of history. Like history doesn't exist anymore. We don't need these things because we solved the problem, right? That's what they did with voting rights. It's past us. So there are all sorts of devious narratives out there that it's up to us as progressive educators to show light on and to show the truth. And Jeff, your work has always done that. I'm. So so honored to have you on the show and I'm committed to working with you and anybody else who wants to have a united front against this kind of stuff. I appreciate you so much. Uh, I keep on fighting the okay. fight. So we'll leave it at that for this one, but we're gonna do more stuff, right? Yeah, uh, you got it. I'd cool. love talking to you. Take care. Okay. Take care. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Columbo Liu, and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.